Mark chapter 10, 35 through 52, if you can please stand for the reading of the word. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when, they, when the ten heard it, they be, began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it, shall not, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you, you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life's life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and in and as he was leaving Jericho with his, with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10 and let's... uh, Let's pray as we look at this passage together. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that whenever we open this book, we have confidence that you are speaking. And so we pray that your spirit would give us the ears that we need to be able to hear you. That your spirit would be at work in our hearts to be able to see you and to be changed by you, Lord. Um, Would you be honored as we look at your word. Amen. 
Well, when I was a kid, one of my favorite Christmas traditions was seeing Santa Claus down on the town square. That's what we called our town center was the square because it was a block and you could you know, go around it like a square. And there used to be this trolley type thing that was supposed to be Santa's sleigh and you could take a ride with Santa around the square. It was this super cool thing that we did as kids. Little did I know at the time that that particular Santa was my parents' friend Steve and he was part of this widespread conspiracy to coordinate our requests with what we actually received under the tree. All I knew was that this was cool and it was fun. And, uh, and of course, the highlight, the highlight of that evening is being able to get a face-to-face with Santa Claus, right? You know, it, it's the same thing that countless parents uh, put their children through today at the malls or, or, or wherever. And after you stand in that line and, and you have the, you, if you survive the obligatory photo op that reduces thousands of children to tears every year, you finally get to ask Santa, or I, I, I take it back, Santa finally asks you the question you've been waiting for, right? What do you want for Christmas? It's like this glorious blank check for a kid. You know, the only problem is limiting your imagination or your greed in order to answer it in a concise way. Now, while some of us uh, certainly have different traditions or may even look askance at that kind of tradition or that question, what if we changed the scenario just a bit? What if Jesus asked you a similar question? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that? That's the very question that Jesus asks two different people in uh, two back-to-back stories in our passage this morning. And what's interesting is that while each of these uh, parties come to Jesus with a request specifically because they recognize that he is the king, he is Israel's king. The first group uh, speaks of sitting in his glory. That's enthronement language. And the second individual calls him the son of David twice. That is the royal title. They both come to him recognizing that he's king. Jesus asks both of them, what do you want me to do for you? But only one of them receives a favorable answer. Jesus says yes to one and no to the other. But what we're going to see this morning is that both Jesus' yes and his no come from a heart of love. Jesus loves us with a prudent love. He knows how to distinguish between what we want and what's truly good for us. We've spent this fall meditating on the heart of Jesus as it's revealed in the Gospels, particularly in how Jesus treats other people, uh, what his interactions with others reveal to us about his love, his love for us, and how we ought to then reflect that love to others. And today we, we return to Mark 10, same chapter we were in last week, where we have two relatively well-known stories, right? Uh, James and John requesting uh, to sit at Jesus' right hand and left, and then the story of blind Bartimaeus. 
and his healing. And, and we typically look at these two stories independent of each other. But what we're going to see is, is that Mark has intentionally stitched these two stories together to create a pretty remarkable contrast, one that, that not only exposes the hearts of the individuals involved, but also reveals Jesus' heart of love. And again, what we see here is, is it's a prudent love, a wise love that, that sometimes is tough and sometimes is tender, but is always loving. And so we'll start with uh, the tough love, if you will, verses 35 to 45. Again, at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for his final week. He is on his way uh, in the next chapter, he's going to arrive and he's going to cleanse the temple and, and, and kick off this final Passion Week. And just prior to our passage, he tells his disciples for a third time what's about to happen, what to expect, namely his condemnation, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. That's what the kingdom of Jesus is ultimately about. That's what it will cost him to establish his kingdom, to take our place in love, to bear the full weight of his father's holy anger against sin, all sin, all rebellion, by dying on the cross and then conquering death in order to bring new life, uh, a new creation through his resurrection. So, so he's been trying to prepare them for what's about to happen talking about his coming suffering. But despite this warning, uh, his disciples, two of them in particular, have been thinking about something entirely different. Uh, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, just by the way that they phrase that, uh, you know this is not going to go well right? Whenever my kids want something but know the answer is going to be no, they will try to broker the commitment before they even make, you know, the request, right? We, we want you to say yes, but we're not going to tell you what we're going to ask until you promise to say it. I mean, it's a classic tactic. Uh, unfortunately, parents can see right through it, right? And, 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 you know, we know what we're doing, but Jesus plays along here. He plays along. He says to them, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So Jesus is talking about suffering, and James and John are thinking about glory. Which, you know, that's what we usually think about when we think about kings and kingdoms, right? The glory, the power, the fame, the admiration, the beauty, people uh, bowing down before you, obeying you, your enemies falling before you. I mean, that's, that's the picture when we think of kings and kingdoms. And, and the closer you are to the king, the more power and glory of his you get to share. So what do you want for Christmas? I want to sit next to the king. That's what they want. And to be fair, it's not entirely clear whether this was their own idea or this was their mom's idea. Uh, in Matthew's uh, telling of this story, 
their mom approaches Jesus with them to make this request. I mean, you, you thought the whole helicopter parent thing was new, right? I mean, long before moms were marching into professors' offices to you know, question the test grade their child got, uh, James and John's mom is lobbying Jesus about the seating order in the kingdom. And so, you know, it, it's kind of funny the way that they execute this plan. It's, it's almost like they came up with this great idea, and they want to get to Jesus and ask him before anybody else thinks of it. They go quietly to him. And just as funny is that when the other disciples find out, they're mad about it. Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They get angry, probably not because this was such an inappropriate request, probably because they didn't think of it first. And if James and John got those seats, that means we're further down the line. Uh, Jesus will ultimately correct all of them in this story. So, so what will Jesus say here? What does his love look like in the face of this kind of request? Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Sometimes love means saying no. The disciples ask for glory, and Jesus gently but firmly says no. And, and part of that is because the disciples don't really know what they're asking. They don't know what they're talking about. Jesus speaks of his mission in terms of drinking the cup. That's the metaphor he uses. And throughout the Old Testament, that cup was a frequent picture of God's wrath against sin and rebellion. Uh, places like Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 51. And so, so, you know, just think about what he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And the cup that he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath that he's about to drink on the cross. The full weight of God's anger against human sin, the cup that God's enemies deserve, that Jesus will take in their place and do so willingly. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He drinks it willingly. James and John fail to realize what it will cost Jesus to receive his glory, that there's a cross before the crown. As Matthew Henry once said, we know not what we ask. When we ask for the glory of wearing the crown and ask not for the grace to bear the cross in our way to it. They hear Jesus talking about a cup and, and for all they can tell, it's, a, it's the cup of the golden goblet of glory and power. It's like, yes, we can drink that one. Cheers, mate. Now they're on to that but they don't know what they ask. And though they don't have ears to hear it yet, 
They don't have a category. Jesus affirms that they will actually drink that cup, the cup of his suffering. Acts 12, James is the first among the apostles to die for his faith. John ends his days in isolation and exile on the island of Patmos because of his witness to Christ. They will drink his cup. They will be baptized with his baptism, with death. And yet, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, Jesus says, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus' answer is no. They will share in his cross, but that particular crown is for the Father to decide. And, and you know, to, to look at Jesus and to see him loving someone by saying no, that, that's hard for us to wrap our heads around today. Our temptation is to think that, that loving someone means giving them whatever they want, whatever is going to make them happy. happy. And, and being loved means that no one ever tells me no. Um, that's our temptation. But, you know, if you think about it, it's not that hard to see the limits of that logic. I mean, you know, just the parents of young children know instinctively that, that that's a lie, that that's not what love looks like. How often does a toddler want something that will actually harm them? You know, grabbing for a sharp knife or, or running into the street or trying to stick their head into an oven or whatever creative forms of, of you know, exploration that are actually dangerous and, and harmful. And, and while your child may kick and scream and call you a tyrant for telling them no, you do it out of love, right? You do it out of love. In fact, to not do that, to say yes to those things would be unloving. We know this. We know this. And yet, as, as clear-minded as that seems, that idea uh, is harder uh, it's hard, it gets less traction today in our age of what's called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. The, the idea that anyone would say no to someone, to what they want or want to be or to do, even to a, to a toddler. It's not just seen as unloving. It's seen as, as hateful and violent and toxic. So, so what do we mean by expressive individualism? It's one of those categories sociologists like to throw around. Um, what is that even talking about? Well, Tim Keller defines it as the belief that identity comes through self-expression, through discovering one's most authentic desires and being free to be one's authentic self. And so, and so you think of the slogans that carry pop culture today, you do you, uh, be true to yourself, follow your heart. Find yourself. That's, that's this idea. Trevin Wax, who um, spoke at our Life on Mission conference a couple years ago, he explains a little bit further. He says, the key here is that the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self, one's deepest self, and then express that to the world, forging that identity in ways that counter whatever family or friends or political affiliations or previous generations or religious authorities might say. So, you, in other words, think of a Disney movie, right? The plot line of the Disney movie is someone finding and forging their self-identity in opposition to the naysayers. 
That's expressive individualism. And, and if that's how we define our purpose in life, to be true to yourself, uh, then one so, so sociologist uh, explains the capacity of individuals to define the terms of their existence by defining their personal identities. That's increasingly equated with liberty and some of our basic rights. You put all of that in religious categories, and Wax explains that if the first and greatest commandment is to be yourself, then the unforgivable sin is to be false or to wilt before some external benchmark that others, like the church, might foist upon you. Sin is the failure to be true to yourself. Thus, the solution's not repentance, but reassertion. It's to reestablish your claim to ultimate sovereignty over your life and to courageously resist the outside forces that would call you to any kind of conformity. So what all of that means for our, our conversation here is that if we define love in the categories of expressive individualism, then unless we meet, unless you meet someone with an unqualified acceptance of who they want to be, who they feel they are, what they want to do, and withhold nothing from them that they believe will be helpful to expressing their true self, then you don't know what love is. You don't know what love is. If you love someone, you want whatever they want, and you give whatever they want. And so, therefore, as a result, we feel unloving whenever we have to say no. And we feel unloved by God if he ever says no to us. But what if, just what if, I don't really know what I'm asking for? What if giving me what I actually want will hurt me instead of help me? What if we admit what the parent of young children knows instinctively, what all of us know instinctively, that not everything we want is actually good for us? That sometimes loving means saying no. And if you think about it in our story, what if Jesus had said yes? What if he granted James and John's request here and gave them what they asked for? He would have actually harmed them in two ways. First, because allowing them to sit on his right and his left in his glory would have gotten them killed very quickly. Think about where Jesus was when he was enthroned to officially start his kingdom. It wasn't in a palace. It was on a cross. Where there, were, there was someone on his right and someone on his left. And at that time, I'm pretty sure James and John were glad it wasn't them. So it would have harmed them in that way. Second, to say yes to their quest for glory would have harmed them in a second way because it would have it would have perpetuated a false view of greatness and a false understanding of God's kingdom. And that's something all of the disciples had to be sorted out on. So if, if you look again at verse 42, 
Jesus called to them, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first, you must be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Following Jesus is not about attaining power and glory for ourselves, but reflecting his glory through sacrificial love, death to myself, laying myself down for others. And the problem here isn't even authority. I mean, we all know that authority and power can be abused. That's, that's not the major problem. Jesus actually promises his apostles a certain level of authority. Uh, in Matthew 19, he tells them they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The problem is lusting for authority and power so that we can use it for our own personal advantage to lord it over someone, to long for it such that, so that knowing Jesus, that simply becomes a means to the end of our own self-glorification. Finding my true self and expressing it. If Jesus can help me do that, I am in and I want to sit as close to him as possible. But if he asks me to do anything or gives to me anything that doesn't help me realize that, that's not love. That's not love. We are more interested in being treated like we're first than serving like we're last. But again, following Jesus, it's not about attaining that power, that glory. It's not about finding ourselves. It's about reflecting His glory through sacrificial love. Again, we, we saw last week that the last will be first. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That means that my life is no longer about me. It's not about having the right to define the terms of my own existence or assert my identity through self-expression, wringing my hands over whether or not others are going to agree with me and affirm that. Rather, surrendering the terms of my existence to Christ, who made me, who saves me, who loves me and gave himself up for me, that reestablishes my identity in him, which actually frees me it frees me to enter into relationships, not asking, what's in this for me, or what will you do for me? But how can I love you? How can I love you? How can I show you the love that Jesus has shown me? How can I serve this person in such a way that they see and savor the glory of Christ? I mean, how freeing would that be to think about? You know, to no longer be enslaved to the insecurity of finding myself or, or uh, of whether or not you like me or agree with me, not, no longer being enslaved to what you think of me, but simply being secure in Christ that I can love you with no strings attached. 
regardless of what you think of me. That's freedom. That's liberty. To love simply because we love and Christ loves. So Jesus loves with a prudent love. He knows how to distinguish between what we want and what's truly best for us, which means that sometimes love means saying no. But sometimes love means saying yes also. And that's what we see in the second story, much more briefly, the tender love of Christ. So look at verse 46. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that Jesus that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So once again, someone approaches Jesus, recognizing his identity, his authority as king, and asking him to do something. And it's quite a contrast to the previous scene, where James and John's helicopter mom basically brokered a conversation with Jesus to try and, you know, advocate for them. Here, the crowds around Bartimaeus are trying to shut him up. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. He's not worth Jesus's time. Just like those pesky kids earlier in the chapter that we mentioned briefly last week. But again, Jesus is kingdom. The last will be first. And so, so when he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me, Jesus calls him And when he comes to him, Jesus says to him the same question he asked the disciples earlier. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Sometimes love means saying yes. And it it really is a pretty stark contrast from from the previous story. Uh, And when you read them in contrast, you kind of realize who's truly blind and who can actually see Jesus for who he is, the kind of king that he is. The disciples ask for glory. The blind man asks for mercy. The disciples sought to leverage their position With Jesus, the blind man doesn't have a position to leverage. He has nothing to leverage, nothing to bargain with. He is utterly and totally dependent on the mercy of others. He is, in the fullest sense of the term, humble. Humble. But he knows his need, and he believes that Jesus is the one who can meet it. And that's what Jesus recognizes. He says, your faith has made you well. Unlike with the disciples where where saying yes to their request would have actually distorted the kingdom of God, here saying yes actually reveals the kingdom of God. It reveals Jesus' love, his authority, his plan to make all things new. It brings 
real help to the man. It delivers him from a crippling trial. It makes him whole again. It brings help and healing that accords with the promises of God's kingdom. Isaiah 35, where where the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And it affirms the man's heart. It affirms the faith in his heart and his handle on who Jesus is. For this man, love meant being tender, compassionate, merciful. Love meant saying yes. Now, that doesn't mean that whenever our heart is good and our faith is real, Jesus promises to say yes. This is not a formula to manipulate a certain answer from Jesus. Rather, this is an invitation to trust his prudent love, that he knows what he's doing, and that his answer, even if it surprises us, even if it doesn't make sense or feels unloving in the moment, that his answer is always fueled by his matchless love. It's grounded not merely in what we want, but in what's truly best for us. And if we stop and think about it, if we reflect just on a single day in our lives, we can see Jesus' yes to us everywhere. I mean, every friendship that we have is an expression of his love for us. Every good thing we enjoy, everything in our lives that makes us stronger, every kindness we receive, every breath we take is Jesus' yes to us. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Which doesn't mean that there aren't still hard things. I mean, to to acknowledge the multitude of Jesus' yeses is not to pretend that there aren't still some no's that are pretty hard to swallow. But every single yes and every single no flows from his prudent love. And when we're tempted to doubt that, when his yes feels late or his no feels unloving, we need only remember the cross. His most costly an ultimate yes to us. I mean, if God can bring something so good, so loving, so life-giving as salvation and eternal redemption from something so ugly, so difficult, and so evil as the crucifixion of the world's Savior, if He can do that, then whatever His answer is to us, we know it's part of His plan to work all things for our good and His glory a glory that was revealed in his first advent, not through a crown, but through a cross. A glory that will be completed in his second advent with the crown. He loves us with a prudent love. Receiving that love requires faith. It requires faith to trust that he knows what he's doing even when we don't get it, even when we don't like it, and that he's doing it out of love. It requires faith and it requires patience. Patience. And reflecting that love, 
So loving others in the same way that he loves us, that requires wisdom. That requires wisdom. When should our love be tough? When should it be tender? How do I know? We need wisdom to love others well, a wisdom that keeps us that keeps our love grounded in truth and wrapped in mercy. Grounded in truth and wrapped in mercy. So, so what does that look like, practically speaking? Well, just one example um, this morning. Uh, for Carissa and me as parents, one thing we try and do with our kids is to say yes to everything we can say yes to. We don't want their experience of Christianity to be a religion of no. Stop it. Don't. We want to say yes everywhere God lets us say yes. Which means that when we say no, they know there's a reason, even if they don't get it. And the guideline, the guardrails that, that help us think through when to say yes and when to say no is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is revealing here. That sin really is sinful because God is holy and that grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin because Jesus' blood is enough. Those are the guardrails. And so when I need wisdom to love my kids well or my neighbors well or my friends or colleagues or whomever, those are the two categories that I try to operate within. The sinfulness of sin and the sufficiency of grace. Because if I lose sight of either of those, that relationship ends up in the ditch. I mean, what happens when you run a hard line on sin and there's no grace? You wind up with a a relationship marked by self-righteous legalism that generates either pride, if they're good at it, good at performing, or shame and despair if they're not. And what happens if you emphasize the abundance of grace, but there's no clarity on sin? You wind up with lives marked by self-destructive indulgence that produces either enslavement or cynicism. Prudent love follows the guardrails of the gospel so that like Jesus, we might be able to distinguish between what someone wants and what's truly best for them. So that whenever we say yes or no, it always comes from a love that's grounded in truth and wrapped in mercy. And I encourage you uh, to ask God for that wisdom. We need his help to have that wisdom. And James 1.5 says that if anyone, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Ask him for wisdom. James continues, but let him ask in faith. We need faith in God's prudent love for us in order to have wisdom in how we reflect that love to others. So may we see in both Jesus' yes and his no, may we see his heart of love. And may we have the wisdom to reflect that in how we love others for their good, and for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we do not always appreciate your love. 
Lord, were we to write the rule book, were we to draft the categories the, uh, that define our existence, um, it would look very different, Lord. So much of, of what we expect in your love is about making much of us. And Lord, yet in this surprising, ironic way, we find that true liberty and freedom come not from being made much of, but being freed to make much of you in Christ. You are our identity. You are our satisfaction, our desire. Nothing on earth can rival that. So Lord, let us trust that that when we pray to you, whether your answer is yes or no, may we receive it as love, knowing that you are working all things for our good and for your glory. And Lord, would we have the humility and wisdom to reflect that love? We need in us the mind of Christ. And God, we confess right now we're not going to get it right. We're going to make so many mistakes as we try to love others. So would we learn to depend on the very grace we're trying to offer? And may we learn to hold fast to the very truth we're seeking to ground our love in. We need you and your love just as much as anybody else, God. May we be humble, faithful servants. May we rest in and rejoice in your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.